welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. And I'm Paul Reesmandel. And on this week's program, we're turning our attention to industrial music. Not the noisy music genre, but music played in industrial settings for workers, including Muzak. Our guest, Alex Huey, is Associate Professor of History at Mississippi State University and has been studying all sorts of things surrounding music, including the history of industrial music systems. Alex, thanks for joining us on Radio Survivor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So I saw you present a paper recently at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies conference that was on the topic of industrial music systems. Um, And you talk about how some of these systems were used for worker morale. And your research really resonated with me because I vividly remember working at a temp job in the 1980s um, and they piped in music, which I thought was Muzak, may not have been Muzak, but it was piped into the shared workspace. And to me, it was very intrusive and distracting because I kept focusing on the music and wondering what the different sound what the different songs were that were playing because I could largely identify them. Um, so I'm, I was really fascinated to learn that these industrial music systems weren't necessarily designed for the purpose uh, like I received it, um, that they were perhaps, you know, supposed to help with productivity and morale and, and that the outcome that I had, the response I had was probably not typical. Um, so, I was fascinated to learn about this much longer history. So I thought maybe, you know, we could just start by having you talk about what industrial music systems are in the first place. Sure. Yeah. I'd be happy to. I mean, I think you can, I mean, I'm sure this audience, it's, it's, it's not new that the music has been a part of working right for since working was invented, I guess. Um, but we can think about, the beginning of the 20th century is the first time in which music is not seen as kind of a break from work um, and, and a sort of relief that happens during breaks or before work or after work, or as like a way to promote a company by like sponsoring a marching band that, you know, parades up and down during the, you know, the town's like summer festival or something. And, it's really with the introduction of recorded sound and the ability to play music without humans, um, you know, making music with their bodies that music starts to accompany labor rather than, you know, sort of exist as, as a break from it. And there's, there's slippage, right? I mean, there's certainly work songs, you know, that are used um, to maintain rhythm or to communicate, but um, the application of this music to usually the factory setting to increase efficiency, to reduce injury, um, to reduce tardiness. Um, so there we can already see the beginnings of trying to, to kind of inform worker morale that you can probably date to the twenties or so 1920s. And so certainly the use of the phonograph being played on the factory floor. And there's some like awesome photos that I found of the phonograph being used, um, not just in like a factory setting with humans working, but also in the dairy barns and playing in the chicken coops and, you know, trying to, um, you know, speed up the the laying, I guess, or increase milk production. I I suspect it actually was more about helping the workers in those settings relax, which then helped the animals relax. But that's um, amazing to think about music being played 
to increase animal productivity. <laughs> I love There's, that. Yeah. And I mean, and you sort of like, well, you wonder what kind of like music the cows like to listen to and things like that. Um, again, some of this I think was a bit performative. The, so there's the phonograph, of course. Um, but then there's also, with the introduction of Muzak, the, the actual you know, music um, amplification system, right, where it's, it's, it's electrically sent in by wires and then there's an integrated speaker system um, that people could subscribe to, factories could subscribe to. And there's usually three to four channels that you would have different types of music that would be played on them. And once Muzak really got into the industrial music scene, they had a whole channel that was devoted specifically to industrial, like blue collar work, like factory work. Um, They also had a channel that was devoted to white collar work. um, And it was supposed to help you focus rather than, help you kind of align your body with the machinery of the, of the blue collar work. And later there was actually the introduction of maybe this would have been helpful in your, in your situation, Jennifer, um, music to help distract you from like the tedium of your work. And it, and this one was very much a response to earlier surveys that were done of workers and, and trying to triangulate what their needs were and what management's needs were. And this was explicitly marketed as it will cut down on the chatter of the young women and will help them, you know, do their work, but not have, they don't need to focus on their work. They need to be distracted from like the tediousness of their work. And so the music was actually a way to kind of escape that space, which I find really fascinating. But Muzak wasn't the only um, main system. There was also an RCA Victor uh, system. This one was a little bit different. It consisted of a subscription system for LPs um, for records, and then they would help fine tune these records, the the actual songs that would come to for these music directors. And every factory was supposed to have a, an RCA system, but it was essentially a public address system that was integrated with a phonograph player. And sometimes there were a couple, right? So you could switch between uh, records, and they would they had little guidance pamphlets for directors on how to think about programming and when to play music and what type of music to play at different times and, and would help them, you know, again, do the the refinements to the acoustics and all of that. So, and that one was a subscription system. And so they're a little bit different and they marketed themselves slightly different. They also aimed at different audiences. Some, I think RCA was in some ways, aimed at both the management and the workers in their marketing, um, whereas Muzak was much more explicitly aimed at managers the whole time. And I definitely want to get into more details about both of these systems, because I think there's a lot, you know, even in what you just described that we need to mm-hmm. kind of draw out. But I'd love to take one step back and and talk just briefly about what drew you to studying this sort of, you know, music being played in factories and workplaces? Sure. Yeah. I mean, again, this is, this is part of a larger project, actually. I think you mentioned um, that I'm interested in looking at the history of the science of background music generally. And so I actually start with Edison and some early studies that he was doing in collaboration with a psychologist at the, um, at Carnegie Mellon, what has become Carnegie Mellon. And, looking at the mood effects of music 
And I became especially interested in, they did this huge survey. They had these um, little pamphlets that you could fill out. And, and for Edison, it was like very much a marketing thing. And it, it allowed him to sort of burnish his, his, his sort of, the way that he sold himself as a, as a great scientist and an inventor. And he, you would fill out this form. You would sort of say what the weather was like and, and what time of day it was like and what mood you were in. And then which of the Edison recordings you listened to and then how you felt afterwards. And, um, and then you would send this in and they got like 20,000 of these. I mean, they actually got a huge amount of data. And what I love about this is that the practice of, I, the argument that I make and what I think is so wonderful about these documents is that the practice of filling out this form, you are actually standardizing your own listening practices, right? Mm. And and you're training these listeners. And, and this was, you know, maybe not explicit, but I think it was very implicit. And it was a goal of the Edison Company. You're training these listeners to think of music as functional and that music can affect your body and it can affect your mood, it can affect your mind. And, um, and again, for Edison, this was a great way to sell records. Um, for Walter Van Dyke Bingham, the psychologist that was studying all this, this was, I thought he was much more interested again in the, the mood effects and the, the psychology behind it. And, and this is the beginning, this is why I use this as the beginning of this whole project, um, of thinking of music as functional and the implications this has for us as individuals trying to shape our, our personal auditory environment, but then also when it starts being applied to other people. So this is where industrial music becomes you know, very relevant and the way in which managers are trying to, they're not always trying to manipulate. I mean, the cynical reading is they're trying to manipulate their workers, but, but morale I think was something that they also took very seriously, especially through the 1940s when they had to ramp up production so quickly. And there is this whole kind of military understanding of morale that, that's quite important and informing the way that they're thinking about their factories. So, so this Alex, goes on, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this notion that music affects your mood, that music can be used in part to set your mood, I think it's something which we take for granted, right, in the contemporary era. Right. And so what yeah. you're saying here is that there's evidence that maybe this was a novel way of thinking about music at the, at the at, in the early uh, in, in the early twentieth century, you know, which of course recorded music is a very new technology at the time. Uh, prior to that, most music you would have heard would have been played by a human, either in the home or or in mm-hmm. public, right? Right. right. So, right. so are, you're saying that, in, in, to an extent, that this is the beginning of a reframing of music. And it in its functional sort of way that that you 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 suggest is different than maybe how people thought about music in the nineteenth century. Yes, exactly. So there's certainly in the nineteenth century there's an association between certain types of music, especially certain keys and certain forms of music and emotion, right? Um, but here the music is doing something to your body and changing it, right? And altering your experience of your own body. It's altering your mood. It can affect your decisions, right? There's a lot of, and it's not just music, right? It's also sound. Um, there's a number of studies that happen, you know, in the wake of World War II, looking at the, you know, whether listening to fascist speeches over the radio can affect your behavior and your morals, right? And um, so there's this interest in the way in which, yeah, there's a new way of listening and there's a new understanding of the 
possibilities of what music and sound are capable of. And yeah, you're exactly right. This is something I think we take for granted and we think is universal and timeless that, you know, the, the options in your, your, your Spotify menu to choose things based on your mood needs. Um, and we do this now, right? I have music I listen to when I exercise and I have music I listen to when I need to write. And this is, this has a history. It's historical. Um, just how, how we're hearing is itself, you know, shaped by time and place. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, if I could follow up, Jennifer, if you don't mind, um, you know, also I think, what 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 strikes me about this is the notion you know we had researchers looking at this a survey asking mm-hmm. people questions mm-hmm. and in some ways you know i think it it, it highlights how uh, research is not neutral right and that mm-hmm. you're suggesting that that in some ways they were frame, reframing music for the people who took the survey that and indeed it may be possible that the folks listening hadn't thought or conceived of music's role, utilitarian role, how it was affecting their moods, it maybe had not been conscious until they were actually asked to think about it. Right. right. It, exactly. It's sort of self-reinforcing exactly. in a way, even though, uh, you know, one might what uh, otherwise look at it is, oh, we're researching this phenomenon to discover about it, but to what extent are we maybe even invoking a phenomenon? Exactly. No, it's a, it's absolutely a feedback loop that gets gets tighter and tighter, Right. And the again, the surveys that are done of workers by Muzak or RCA to for them to refine the the playlist essentially that they're that they're then marketing to the managers is you know the surveys themselves, some of them you complete a sentence or some of them are yes no questions, and the the yes no questions are wonderful. I think I showed a, an example of this in that. Um, presentation I gave Jennifer, but the you, it's for Muzak and it's these statements and you agree or disagree. And the statement is, you know, Muzak makes the time go faster, agree or disagree. Muzak makes my work more enjoyable, agree or disagree. The music I wish would end immediately. And so it's both, you know, marketing and reinforcing this kind of functional application of, of some form of music um, to the working setting. So, in, you know, work, music becomes, let me back up, music works, right? It is a laborer in a sense. It gets integrated into the factory, not just the factory soundscape, but the, the factory scape at all um, as, a, as, a, as a laborer. Yeah. I mean, in thinking about these studies And I mean, it reminds me of studies that I did even in college as a psychology Mm -hmm. major. I think we even did a project about, you know, does time fly when you're having fun and, you know, having people watch or listen to something that we thought was fun. And does that make time go by more quickly? So the extension of all those projects. So um, I'm imagining, I'm guessing that some of this research is what prompted companies to come up with these industrial systems or to think about hey, maybe we should be playing music all day for workers in the factory. Can you talk a bit about what prompted the creation of Muzak or of the RCA system? Ooh, so there, there, I think they're slightly different stories. The, the Muzak system was 
invented there's there's a there's better histories of the sort of play by play of the development of the the technology itself um the expansion of it in the 40s and 50s was an explicit expansion there was a new ceo that just basically blasted it into as many different settings as possible and um so found that it was useful in like public waiting areas so like lobbies of banks lobbies of hotels or you know this probably apocryphal story of playing it in a hotel and people would just come in off the street to like mill around in the lobby to listen to the music and so it quickly expands in public spaces and then in industrial settings it was very clear there were a number of studies that were done in the 30s in Britain looking at increased efficiency of factories that had music playing. Now they were actually quite careful um, to, and they, again, this was studied very carefully. They often didn't play it continuously. So what you experienced was, I think some people would say a misapplication of music um, in the work setting. They, they wanted it to energize the workers. So, they, and they recognized, they, I found this in several places, they recognized that the workers were stuck right you have no ear lids and they could not escape and so they didn't want to irritate them with music continuously or music they didn't like so this was part of the reason they were trying to get these um, response surveys and get a sense of what they actually wanted to listen to but they found that it works better to just play for 30 minutes at a time and you know just in the morning when everyone's coming in and then maybe a mid-morning time along with announcements and, and that kind of thing. And then after lunch, they would play music, but you could never play a march after lunch because everyone would find that to be especially kind of like real drudgery. And, <laughs> um, and then another one, they saw, you know, productivity would decline rapidly right around this time of day, right? Like sort of like mid to late afternoon. And um, so that was another time to have a little 30 minute kind of injection of music. And they got very refined in what type of music should be played. It should be, you know, two to three minutes long, not a long intro. It needed to be, you know, sort of bright instrumentals that could cut through across the factory floor. They, yeah, I think that's, I, that's something I've been thinking about is that, so if, if factories were some of the maybe main places where you're hearing these sorts of music systems in the beginning, I would imagine those are very noisy spaces. So what is that like when you're trying to broadcast something over that? Right. And that's something that the different companies marketed. So Muzak marketed themselves explicitly as, I mean, and it's a lot of kind of hand-waving acoustics, but they say, you know, that the frequency cuts through the factory sound and, and that, you know, the way in which they designed their speakers is especially effective for that. Now, this is a distinctively American thing. There's been some studies of industrial music in England and industrial music in Germany. And there's different priorities for whether or not the music should cover up the sounds of the factory or if it should work in concert with it. And I think the argument about the German setting, I think this was Karen Beisterfeld's work, but I'm going to feel bad if that's not who the author is. Um, the, in the German setting, it was actually the, the sounds of the factory were supposed to be kind of celebrated and, and not muffled. And so the, 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 the music is actually kind of supposed to, to be uh, in concert with it rather than, than hiding it. Which makes me like think about 
avant music genres and experimental music that incorporates noise. And, you know, mm-hmm. like at the beginning, I was sort of joking about we're doing an episode about industrial, industrial music, music. But, but not about throbbing gristle or, yeah. you know, industrial music bands. But, um, but yeah, that's probably an aside, but it does make you wonder if there were musicians who were inspired by that um, combination of industrial sounds with the music being piped into the factory. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and again, you know, these are triumphant sounds, the sounds of production and, you know, the, the sounds of modernity. This is, these are not necessarily sounds that, that should be hidden away, right? They're to be celebrated. The music could be part of that. But not in the American setting. There, it was much more about giving workers the sense that the that management cared about them and also manipulating their bodies and to increase productivity and reduce mistakes, essentially. And I know, I know there's kind of a parallel with radio as well with the creation of some of these companies in the beginning, maybe even before they were uh, piping in music to factories. And, and I feel like in, in the way you've described, especially the RCA system, that it seems like there are some parallels with radio stations. Like you mentioned that um, a plant might have a music director, that there's a subscription service where they're getting mm-hmm. records um, yeah, maybe talk about like how the parallels you see with radio and, and if if some of these um, factories might even feel like a mini radio station at times. I mean, there's certainly some of these factories had really well-developed programming and they would have weekly quizzes and they would have, you know, the employee of the week come in and accept a prize and they running contests between different people and people would come and perform, you know, for over the PA system. So, um, I mean, I'm sort of picturing it being a little bit like when I was in junior high, there was sort of constant stuff coming in over the PA system and um, which I guess, you know, does boost morale and everyone feels like they're part of a, a family, essentially. They, yeah. I, so I think that, I don't know. Now I'm wondering if the if the music directors. I don't think that was a full time position, um, but it, it. I think it was probably a task of someone in management, and um, and this was again. You know, there were different systems. There were some where they could basically run themselves, and others, and certainly the music system, right, doesn't require anyone, um, and because it's all getting piped in directly. But the there's sort of varying degrees of involvement. Um, and I, I imagine management would sort of make decisions about that, about depending on what their needs were. Alex, Paul, the, you uh, mentioned the music. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna. Uh, I believe, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it was actually also piped in via radio. They they tried that for a little while, yeah, and I think that they found, and I don't think they launched that until the '50s. Okay. Um, and, yeah, that's and when the that technology point, would have been available. Yeah. Yeah, and but I think they really struggled, and they I think they gave up on it because they were having trouble making inroads with it. They were also trying to expand into like personal homes and like domestic settings, and so they had a whole plan to do that. And I think that was especially going to be integrated with like a radio kind of broadcasting system. But they, at that point, they were running up against television as a competitor. And um, so the, this was, or at least this is what they were saying in their internal memos that they were kind of losing out on this market share and it was just kind of too late. 
um, to enter into those settings. I was going to come back to your point about, or your question about the looping that happens and the way in which, you know, there's this feedback loop of, of asking people to think about how they listen to music. And then this changes the way in which they think about how they listen to music. And because this is often background music and it's framed as background music and they're asked to pay attention to it and attend to it, it does interesting things to the background as well. And this is one of the threads that kind of weaves through this project as well, that, um, you know, by the sixties and seventies, it's like wall to wall sound, or it's possible, right. To have, you know, music playing at your home, on the bus, at your work, you know, at the restaurant, at the bar and, and then, you know, on your way home again. And, and all of this can be highly controlled. And with, that, I argue, um, this type of sound becomes naturalized, right? This becomes part of, of the human environment. And as a consequence, the environment itself becomes background, right? As, as, as other sounds become sort of attended to the environment, whether it be a natural environment or, or a built environment, it still becomes backgrounded in a way that I think is, is new. And the what I'm trying to get at, and this is, we were talking earlier a little bit about silence. Um, I think the key to this is silence. And this is because this is a moment when silence becomes awkward. We don't know how to sit quietly with each other and be silent anymore. There always has to be music. And, and this happens right in this period. And it also becomes a technique for comedy, like the awkward silence. It becomes a concern in etiquette books. I, you know, this is something I'm looking into right now, but I think this is a moment when we start to get really uncomfortable with just being quiet. Well, and that, I mean, that makes me think of my example from the very beginning of being in this 1980s um, office setting. And in fact, it was a very empty office. I was one of the mm -hmm. only people there. I think it was maybe salespeople had cubicles, but they were never there. And so perhaps they were playing, piping in this music to cover up the fact that this office was just completely dead, like sort of a hide the loneliness. Yeah. I mean, this is very surreal, but it was being played at what I thought was a rather high volume. So then it felt like you were in a post-apocalyptic mall or something you know, <laughs> with nobody around. Well, you know, and a lot of radio stations, a lot of radio genres advertise themselves as being for work. Um, yeah. Right. So you've got more or less adult contemporary and it's various sub variants mm -hmm. now because it's, you know, split off 12 different ways, you know, active adult contemporary or something or the Jack FM or something like that, a light mm -hmm. FM, et cetera, will actively advertise themselves on billboards, on television and, and, and mm -hmm. that, you know, it, it, it's just a station everyone loves at work, right? And it's usually because it's reasonably upbeat music, pop hits of the last 20, 25, 30 years, right? And I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've heard this lately, but I remember maybe 10, 15 years ago hearing them also advertise themselves and there's no, you know, no hard rock and no rap, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? You know, the, the two things on the spectrum that, that might, uh, some people may be less into. I hope that's not uh, still the advertising uh, today in, in 2022. I don't know if that if you've thought about that at all, Alex, and how in, in this continuum now that it becomes, uh, you know, in, in speaking, you know, as you noted, as you've mentioned, you know, music becoming naturalized to the background that then you have 
other media, radio specifically, but more common consumer radio being advertised as well as your 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 work accompaniment. Yeah, I think. I mean, it, at some point, it becomes this absolute cacophony, and I, I mean, and those the way in which you describe the these the how radio is promoting itself is. I mean, the work is mostly done at that point, right? And people, you know, like, of course, I need to listen to music to to do well at my job or to pay attention. And um, and there's all these different ways, you know, now there's all these different forms of, of music that you can choose from. The I think what becomes really interesting is that people, again, Americans for the most part, aren't disturbed by this. I mean, it's interesting when I when I talk about this material in different settings um you know they find this deeply dystopian and and problematic and then others are just like yeah i mean that's this is what i do to make sure i run farther when i'm exercising and there is this moment where there is a concern about the authenticity of the affect that is being elicited and you know like if 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 it's the music that's making me happy am i truly happy right and um but that sort of flips away and, and it doesn't seem to be a big concern anymore. And it, it, I mean, other outside of dystopian literature, right? And, and I, I find this really interesting too, that this people don't seem to find it threatening at all. And, you know, we've been talking about a little bit about the types of music and, and, you know, that maybe it's adult contemporary music now that might advertise itself as work music. I'm curious about, you know, you talked about no marches uh, after lunch, um, but what sorts of music was being serviced by Muzak and RCA? Like what kind of music did they think at the time, like back in the 1940s? Uh, what was the kind of music that people wanted to hear while they were working in a factory? It was so, it was a mix of different things. They would, they had these lists that you could check off the music that you liked and I remember seeing discussions saying lots of people want Hawaiian music, but we cannot play Hawaiian music because they will not do any work, right? And but there was polka and popular music and gospel music, classical music, what we would call classical music. They there was a repeated story that I don't know how frequently this happened or if everyone just repeated it because I think I also think it's funny. And they said never, never, ever ever play deep in the heart of Texas because everyone will stop what they're doing and clap along. And so, <laughs> you know, there's, there's sort of warnings like that. Um, but it sounds like these kinds of um, traditional songs, maybe you would call that at the time, were, were also quite popular. Um, again, it needs to be upbeat. And um, there, it was, now that I think about it, there, one of the surveys also collected some demographic information, not just, you know, um, what is your, what kind of labor do you do, but, you know, age and gender and national origin, they were actually collecting ethnic information surprisingly early. And, and then later in some of the internal discussion, they were saying, we can't play Wagner in the factory that is mostly Polish immigrants and, you know, things like that. So there, there didn't seem to be a recognition of that different populations had, um, yeah, different types of reactions to music so that there, it wasn't universal and that they needed to be sensitive uh, to different values. But that, again, was just a fleeting statement. So the larger impulse to me seems to be not only to 
using this more and more and trying to maximize the the profit that would come out of it, but then also maximize the use of it. So ending up in the 1980s where it's playing all the time very loudly <laughs> rather than, you know, for 30 minute chunks, um, you know, just to kind of re-energize the system. And the, you know, with the RCA system, I, I think it's really fascinating that it was more localized, that you could have an on-site music director. And, and so I would imagine then from factory to factory, you would have a very different experience of the music you were hearing and the kind of programming. Um, and so were they utilizing surveys that were very much based on that local, um, on that very location so that an on-site music director could then tailor what they're doing and, you know, take requests maybe from the workers. I mean, that's the implication that you have to kind of extrapolate from the the historical record, right? So the stuff that's in the archives is these surveys, right? Not filled out, but just blank ones that they sort of distributed as samples to management. And, and then in some cases when they would report on these emblematic cases in their week, their monthly newsletter that they would distribute. So they would showcase certain factories were doing this thing and this other factory was doing this thing. The, the surveys, though, I mean, there's distinct differences between the RCA Victor surveys and the Muzak surveys. The RCA Victor surveys were much more open-ended. And so it would say, do you have any feedback for us? And tell us what you would like to listen to. And, and there was a thing called a request card, whereas the Muzak surveys tended to be either an engineer that worked for Muzak going to the factory and actually watching what people were doing or these very um, narrow kinds of surveys where they would do the yes, no questions and, and that kind of thing. They could also say what type of music they liked. So they, they would do that. And here again, we see a, a kind of standardization of music typologies, right? And to think about, you know, the, of the different types of music that you can have in a working setting. There is polka, there is Hawaiian, there is, you know. And um, so here we have, yeah, again, training listeners and by the, through the process of collecting data about them. We are here on Radio Survivor talking to Alex Huey about industrial music systems uh, that were utilized in the workplace and, you know, the way you're describing these surveys, there's a bit of a difference between the two systems that we've been discussing, RCA and MUSAC. And if I recall, MUSAC had a different goal um, than RCA Victor. Can you explain that again about um, how those two systems had different goals, which seems to really affect um, uh, the reception of both systems as well? Sure. Yeah. I think that I mean, this is, they weren't necessarily explicit goals, but I think there were, the way in which they were framing their approach to both the technology and to the, the workers themselves led to different worker experiences of sound. The Muzak people, again, were, I think partly because it was, this arm of the organization was run by an engineer, they were they liked framing things in a way that they could count. And it, it seemed much more objective. Like you can count the number of absentees, you know, you can count the number of people that are late. You can count the number of mistakes, you know, when there's like a thing that's being made and there's some flaw with it um, or injuries and they would chart 
you know, these numbers against when Muzak was used and when Muzak wasn't used, or they would chart it over the course of the day to see when, you know, production declined, um, or over the course of the week to see when production declined, and then they would use that as to identify when they should be playing Muzak. And um, so it was a very kind of engineering-oriented framework to the problem, whereas RCA, from what I can tell from the archives, they are much more interested in worker feedback and using that to then develop the programming for the workers. And the fact that they give all this flexibility to the managers, again, allows the managers to, to respond to workers' needs and, um, and, and the needs of that specific factory. Now, the, a lot of this may have been a marketing ploy, right? I mean, this is how they distinguish themselves from each other. And um, Muzak talks a lot about psychoacoustics and and the way in which their you know their their technology is specifically designed and highly precise uh, for these settings. Whereas the RCA Victor people tend to talk about worker morale um, and and have real concerns about flexibility and and not just workers being happy but feeling like management listens to them and cares about them and management also feeling like the workers are listening to them and so there's this kind of it and again this is based on evidence from the newsletters that they're distributing every month so this is a particular way they want to frame themselves to their readers so but this is this is what we work with as historians right trying to understand sound and um, and kind of triangulate from these types of documents what the actual listening experience might have been. You know, uh, we keep talking about Muzak as in the in the past tense, but I I don't think it is actually, both sort of figuratively and literally, because I did look into it a little bit, and and Muzak still exists, only it's yes. now a company called Mood Music, mm-hmm. and their tagline is "We put people in the mood to buy." So I, I wanted to kind of use that as as a as you know. So we have the sort of industrial application, but there's also which you alluded to sort of there's also sort of a retail application, if you will, right? Because you, you mentioned you know being piped into sort of uh, hotel lobbies and people might come right. in just just to listen to music. And then you know I know of these ex- of these examples of of say Kmart radio. Which mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the Internet Archive has somebody has contributed hours and hours of tapes of Kmart Radio, which is presented as if a radio station, but it's you know was delivered I guess on cassettes or reel to reels with mm-hmm. popular music, and then of course announcements you know for the for the stores as well as maybe announcements of sales or or something like that. You know, is what's the continuum there? I mean, obviously there, there must be some. I don't know, you know, how you've uh, looked at kind of the integration then of these same ideas into into the everyday, but but still with with the idea of 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 moderating people's mood to buy, I guess. Yes, so there it's absolutely a continuum and it it's there's a lot of different players at work. So there's radio again, right? That is is also um, advertising, you know, sort of enters radio as as a way of supporting it. And so you also some of these background music systems, like on public transit, will pay for themselves through advertising. So already the public is used to listening to music, but then also having advertisements coming through. I think that music 
really starts to lose out its market share in the 70s and 80s with the rise of foreground music, which is music that is specifically branded to a company or a store. So this is when you get the beginning of a Kmart typology of music or Starbucks and world music, if we all recall, right, um, back in the 90s, that there was a sort of distinctive Starbucks sound. And this was all very carefully selected music. Um, there's, I think... Again, I'm gonna. I don't have the names right at the front of my, the tip of my tongue. There, people have worked on this about Starbucks and world music, and um, so this foreground music that is a, explicitly associated with branding. It's to make the space welcoming to certain consumers, but not to others, right? And um, so we see lots of gender and race and class dynamics being played out here. And, um, and so this, this, this type of music and a number of companies that, that offered it uh, tended to eat away at Muzak's market share and eventually bought them at some point when they went bankrupt, when they filed for bankruptcy um, a decade, I think, or so ago. They got eaten up by one of these other companies. But, so that's what they're now doing, I think, is sort of working in that realm. And, but there's also you know, satellite radio and all the streaming music, and there's all these different ways in which um, you have this kind of increasingly potentially branded music or music that's specifically catered either by algorithm or by a human being that is designing it you know, just for you or some sort of sum. There's another thought I had about this that is like skittering away from me. Oh, the Internet Archive. And um, and this I, I encourage anybody to go find this. It's actually really fun. And you have to the, the thing is, though, if you're going to listen to it, you have to choose one tape and you have to listen to it for an entire month because that's what those tapes were used for. They you would get a new the managers would get a new one each month and they were supposed to destroy the old one and then play it. So like it's all fun, you know, for like 12 minutes, you know, or maybe like a day. But you have to think of it if you're working in Kmart and that you have to listen to this for 30 days. Straight. And it's just like a 90 minute tape. Right. Or maybe two hours worth yeah. of tape. Right. So yeah. Even yeah, just exactly. a, a regular shift, you'd have to hear it four to or more times. I, it actually reminds me. I worked in a in a small retail uh, department store, regional chain in New Jersey uh, in college, and uh, they had like one freaking tape that played kind of like fifties and sixties oldies, but it was an hour and a half, and they played it over <laughs> and over again, and. I wanted to rip my ears off after mm-hmm. it, it did not contribute to my um, overall <laughs> productivity in that environment. But but thinking about music specifically, I mean, at some point, and certainly for my lifetime, music has a negative comment connotation. Right. right? We don't like the the brand name stops meaning is doesn't have a positive connotation i think to right. to somebody who grew up in the in the 80s or 90s it it's a connotation of of being you know saccharine or in a you know inoffensive of not being you know you're you're not going to hear the beatles you're going to hear the Montavani strings version of the beatles mm-hmm. you're going to hear you mm-hmm. know the vocals taken out it's going to be you know, completely anodyne and, and and stripped of any sort of unique qualities, whether or not that continued to be true, that was, I think that's sort of the the popular connotation. And and so I, I'm I'm curious, is that, I mean, is that really what it was for all this time? I guess. And at one point, it was a radio genre called beautiful music, which would right. also play you know sort of pop hits, not by the original artists, 
you know, redone by strings um, or Lawrence Welk or something. It was, is that, is that conception? Is that accurate? And, and, and if so, like, why? <laughs> I mean, I think, no, I think your, your intuition is right. I, my understanding or my reading of all of this is that it, it got a little caught in time Right. I mean, right as it was, it was trying to expand, but was also running up against a number of competitors. You get this rise of counterculture, right? And this reaction against the parent, you know, our parents' music, and you know, the Lawrence Welk and the like light music, and and there's all these alternatives that are seemingly more authentic, right? And so it gets associated with an aesthetic, even though it's not that, right? It would claim it's a technology and that it, it is its own. It was for a long time, it was, it had its own music recording and production arm. They would make their own music, right? And they would have composers that would write for them. And um, so they, they got sort of, yeah, they got associated with what is now considered sort of tacky, annoying music, right? Elevator music. And, um, but in some ways that's not entirely fair, right? Because that's not what they, you know, explicitly were trying to do. And it's not what they continued to do. They, they made all sorts of new music. And again, like you said, they still exist. Um, it, yeah, it became kind of shorthand for, for music that we love to hate or we associate with waiting, right? Being stuck on hold or stuck in an elevator or stuck in a lobby. And um, so, and, and the music itself, right? It seems to have gotten stuck in time. But I think it was also an inspiration for a lot of composers and, and musicians to react against it or to play with it, right? And um, so I'm thinking of like Devo. I think Devo... Mark Motherspot tells this story about how they were playing this series of concerts and they found like one of the main venues was actually playing music beforehand, um, before their concerts as everyone was filing in. So they started and they ended up re-recording one of their whole albums as like a music version of it and of their own music. And, and it, you know, it becomes this kind of playful thing um, to, to kind of fiddle around with. And so you can still find some of those tracks, uh, the Devo version or the music version of Devo. Interested. I, th- I think it's also interesting, you know, Paul was talking about, um, you know, our, the stereotype that people of our generation have about music and that there are no vocals, uh, you know, that's all instrumental. Was that the case in the factories where, were they playing music with vocals or was it all instrumental? Like, is that no. part of this legacy or not? I don't think so. So that, then I think they still had songs, yeah, that had that had vocals to them. I think now the reason the vocals are stripped out is to because you can play the same song on a loop uh, for longer. Like people won't notice that you're progressing through the song because they don't hear <laughs> the stanzas and the chorus coming back again and that kind of thing. Oh my god! <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's a lot. It's I mean that if nothing else, right? My larger point. I mean, I'm a historian of science, right? I'm not just a, a straight cultural historian. And there's a lot of science and engineering and psychology behind all of this. This is highly refined, and it's no accident. You know, any of these decisions, it's, it's very carefully you know crafted. Did you have access? To these recordings, I mean, the RCA system or the the music system, were you able to find recordings and 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 hear what was actually played? So some of the older RCA stuff I've been able to find. The music stuff is much more difficult to find because they are very protective of this material. I was actually in touch with the 
public relations with someone there several years ago before their last bankruptcy filing and new, most recent acquisition. And, um, you know, I think they're very nervous about their reputation given, given the sort of delicateness of it. And they, they, uh, back when I talked to them, they had 16, 17 pallets of the original pressings and the masters and all sorts of internal documentation. And I was, you know, I was just like passed out on the floor with like delight as a historian. And um, they had moved, they were about to move from Seattle to North Carolina. And he was telling me, he's like, yeah, we were going to destroy all this stuff because we don't need it. And I was like, ah, and, and he said it was actually more expensive to destroy it than to move it back. So it's sitting in like outside of Charlotte in a warehouse um, but I haven't been able to listen to any of that stuff directly, mm. but there's more and more things like, you know, internet archive where people are slipping stuff in there and, um, and you can find it. Um, this is a technique I would say I would, I've stolen from Emily Thompson of, um, you can find it in the background to movies and, uh-huh. you know, various films, like there's ways to, to find it existing like truly in the background and sometimes it gets played up for comedy. I and mean, I'm thinking of like the blues brothers now. Um, but, but there's also, you know, times where it just sort of exists and um, it's, it's little traces of these sounds. These yeah. I think in repo, repo man, I remember vividly hearing, you know, like supermarket music mm-hmm. and, and it, it comes to the foreground when you're paying attention because it, it just creates the whole mood of, you know, of this sleepy supermarket at night and this, you know, sad music. <laughs> I go to a hipster supermarket where, you know, sometimes I go on a Monday afternoon and I hear gang of four. So, yeah, <laughs> but you know, I was thinking about the technological side. You talk about these pallets of tapes and I know that to some extent there were proprietary technological formats. Like, you know, right. so on the one hand, like I know like these Kmart tapes we reference often came just on traditional cassettes or reel to reels, but often they wanted them in sort of systems I think in part, I wonder if there's part of it was so that they could not be played by an unauthorized user. And then on the other side, because they were meant to be continuous, right? And so they wanted to be able to make sure that the system could be operated by, you know, any any given worker and just sort of turn it on and it would just run and someone wouldn't have to attend to it. So that you bring up an interesting juxtaposition, right? That it's standardized for ease of use, and yet, like, is proprietary for, you know, business reasons, I suppose. And, to, and yeah, and to maintain control over um, over the music itself. And I, I think that's right. And and it, I think that's ultimately probably the, the tension that undid them, right? And that there's, I mean, there's still music systems around. I, I dork out when I, like, walk into my bank and I run up to the wall with this little speaker, which makes everyone nervous at the bank um, because I'm behaving very strangely. <laughs> um, but they, you know, there's there's still places that have these integrated systems and, um, but they, yeah, they, they're defunct now, I think, at this point. Although one of the people said they used, it wasn't that long ago that they, they stopped their subscription to it. So it may still be that it's being serviced. Um, and with the and these are by being serviced, they would be uh, sort of live as broadcast or or pre recorded systems or, or both. I think that they were pre recorded systems. Yeah. I, I assume at this point. It, um, I mean, again, it was it was a music system. I mean, you mm-hmm. on the dials and and the speakers and everything. And um, yeah, it definitely wasn't live broadcast. But I'm I'm not quite sure if it um, how algorithmic it was at that point. 
I'm, I'm curious, Alex, kind of reflecting on all of this after digging into all the archives, do you have a sense of whether or not these systems achieved their goals? Like did employee morale and efficiency improve? Oh boy. <laughs> I, I don't think we can know. I mean, they, I, yeah, I, on the one hand, it, on, it must have because people kept doing it. Um, there was at least, it seemed, well, here's the thing, right? It, it either was effective enough that management was willing to invest in it. And some of these systems were not cheap, especially the RCA Victor ones were actually quite expensive. Um, so you had to really believe in the science or have seen evidence that it worked. The, what is interesting is the idea of believing in the science, right? And here this goes back to this idea of thinking of music as functional and to be able to imagine that this system would work and then invest money and time and energy into it, right? That, you know, that it seems so possible um, because of this functional understanding of music that you would then say, okay, we will spend the equivalent of like $12,000, you know, integrating this into a factory. And, and then it reinforces um, itself, doesn't it? Because exactly. once it becomes sort of omnipresent, then it's, then as you mentioned, you know, the awkwardness of silence it it been becomes like well our supermarket our office our bank well we're the weird ones by not having it right yeah exactly and it so yeah if you're the only one that has these awkward silences and no one's going to come to your your store or your bank and I'll note also I meant to I was thinking about this earlier that part of the reason you I have been told part of the reason there's much more background music in the U.S. and not in, like, say, Europe is because of worker rights and that this is actually a labor issue of being annoyed, having to listen to the same 90 minutes over and over and over for you know, an entire month. And that and the decibel level, right? So there's real restrictions on how loud the music can be. Um, apparently, there's efforts to, to take care of that in the United States as well, but certainly... Um, abroad, you know, workers have been able to advocate for like the hearing damage that is occurring. Um, loud, loud workplaces. Lawrence well, it makes Welk me is killing my hearing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it also makes me think about, um, you know, portable personal audio devices, and you know, does that now replace these factory wide? systems where, you know, it's so commonplace um, for people to listen to their own music while at work, you know, at home, working at home or working in the mm -hmm. office, you know, with their earbuds in. Right. And it, it, so this is something that when I was first thinking of this project, I saw that as the obvious endpoint as this kind of retreat back to like a personal individual listening experience. But I've decided it's still part of this continuum if for no other reason than because it's, it's at this point, most people are listening algorithmically, right? They're listening through these like playlists that, I mean, some people still make their own playlists, right? But I think it's very few. It's not, you know, your discman make your own, you know, tape anymore. That, that existed briefly. But now again, everyone's using streaming services and, and these things are, are sort of, it's, it's not very different from music and the channels, um, that music would create. And the streaming services all offer explicit workplace uh, and, and yeah. retail services so that, that they can purchase in part. Uh, we don't want to go down this rabbit hole because in fact, there are performance rights that need to be paid that are bundled right. if, with the music service or the RCA service. Those were all bundled up. And so then right. you can also get a Spotify or Pandora 
that takes care of those fees so that you don't have uh, the BMI person knocking on your door uh, right. asking you for uh, for back payments in addition to, you know, obviously paying for the for the um, service itself. Right, exactly. So I think we're not so far away, you know, as much as we have, you know, again, the Muzak is associated with either a dystopian kind of listening paradigm or just a really tacky one. We are not very far from that at all. And in some ways we're, we're, we're listening in exactly the same way. Alex Huey, it's been so great talking to you today about the history of these industrial music systems. And, you know, it definitely is making me think differently about, um, factories and, you know, the soundscape that was taking place in the past while all of these workers were, were in the room and, um, you know, whether or not it was a system that was sort of thrust upon you from above or one where your factory had a little bit of control. I'm imagining the music director on site being kind of a sweet gig there, you know, and, and kind of like a little, uh, college radio station. Well, it could be the most loved or most hated person, depending on, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. What music you chose for after lunch. Yeah. And having the power, yeah. Having the power to play what your workers want to hear. So, um, I appreciate you kind of elucidating this, this interesting aspect of music history and audio history and you've been listening to Radio Survivor. I'm Jennifer Waits here with Paul Rees-Mendel. And uh, every, every week we talk about the world of radio and sound and dig into all these different corners of radio history. Thank you so much for joining us, Alex. Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed this very much. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Radio Survivor. You can see our show notes at radiosurvivor.com, where you can also subscribe to this show as a podcast. We're also carried on more than two dozen community and college radio stations across North America and Ireland. Learn where you can find Radio Survivor on the radio dial, again, at radiosurvivor.com. If you have any comments about the program or any suggestions for things we might cover, you can drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And finally, this is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. So if you want to learn more about that, you guessed it. You can learn more at radiosurvivor.com. Thanks again for spending an hour with us.